Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 68. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 24 through 27 in the book of Samuel and follow with a consideration of apprentices and their masters. The pursuit of David continues. Shaul leads 3,000 men into the desert on the western shore of the Dead Sea towards the oasis at En Gedi where Shaul pauses to relieve himself in one of the many caves in the canyon wall, but he's not alone. David and some of his men are in the cave too, and they urge him to finally end the pursuit and the conflict once and for all. But instead, David sneaks up on Shaul and cuts off a piece of the king's cloak, and is immediately overcome with guilt for even raising a hand against the king in this manner. After Shaul rejoins his men, David comes out of the cave and essentially shames Shaul into giving up the grudge. You see, he says, I had you. I could have killed you, and I didn't. Because despite what you may believe, I never wanted to harm you. Quote, After whom has the king of Israel come forth? After whom are you chasing? After a dead dog? After a single flea? The Lord will be arbiter and judge between me and you, that he may see and plead my case and judge me against you. At which point, as if a veil was removed from Shaul's eyes, Shaul calls out, Is this your voice, my son, David? And bursts into tears. The grudge is squashed. For now. Chapter 25 begins with the death of Shmuel, an event that should be momentous, but barely commands one verse, before moving on to the Carmel, up in the north, where a wealthy man, Naval, is celebrating the shearing of his sheep. David sends some of his boys to ask Naval for a donation, something to tide his men over. You know, some food, something. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? If you'd come to me in friendship, then the scum that ruined your daughter would be suffering this very day. And if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then you would become my enemy. And then they will fear you. Be my friend. Godfather. Well, Naval replies, quote, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? These days many are the slaves breaking away from their masters. And shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men who come from I know not where? To which David replies, This means war! So David and 400 of his men head up to Naval's place to settle things. And meanwhile, Naval's wife, Avigail, realizing what her husband had done and guessing what was about to happen to her husband, orders her servants to pack up bread, wine, meat, grain, raisin cakes, and fig cakes, and takes off to head off David and his men. When they meet, Avigail soothes David's temper. Did I also mention that Avigail was exceedingly beautiful? And when she returns home and eventually tells her husband what she did, quote, his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Within ten days, Naval dies, and Avigail soon becomes David's wife. And so does Achinoam from Israel, which, if you're keeping score, makes them wives two and three after David's existing wife, Michal, daughter of Shaul. 
Except in the meanwhile, Shaul gave Michal to Palti, the son of Laish. Come on! And since we're on the topic of Shaul, guess who forgot that he squashed the grudge against David? That's right. And despite his best efforts to catch David, not only doesn't he catch him, but David manages to sneak into the king's camp while he's sleeping and steal the king's spear and water jug. And then, as before with the cave, he shouts out to the king and his people about his exploits and shames the king's guards for being so lax. And again, as if someone else was leading the charge, Shaul calls out, quote, Come back, my son David, for I will not harm you again inasmuch as my life was precious in your eyes this day. I have played the fool and have erred gravely. David may forgive again, but he does not forget a similar promise made at En Gedi. He resolves to go someplace where Shaul can never reach him, the land of the Philistines. So when Shaul says, Blessed are you, my son David, you shall surely do much, and you shall surely win out, they are the last words Shaul and David shall ever exchange. David takes up residence in Gat with King Achish and is granted leave to settle in Siklag. David uses the city as staging ground for attacks against the neighboring Geshurites, Gerizites, and Amalekites, and quote, He left not a man or woman alive, and he took the sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels and clothes. David leaves no witnesses because he doesn't want Achish to cotton on to two things. Number one, David is not attacking who he says he's attacking. Achish thinks David is striking out against his kinsmen in Yehuda, and second, David is not sharing all of the spoils with Achish, only some of it. Achish is nonetheless pleased that David has, quote, become repugnant to Israel, and he will be my perpetual vassal. And so, when it comes to war between the Philistines and Israel, David will be expected to fight on the Philistine side. How he'll resolve that thorny dilemma will be revealed in the next episode. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. If the book of Genesis was about families, or or more specifically, dysfunctional, messed up families, then the book of Shmuel seems to be about the textured and torturous relationship between masters and their protégés. If you recall from episode 62, Shmuel, the last judge, prophet, and namesake of this book, had a meaningful yet complicated relationship with his mentor and teacher, Eli. This relationship was no doubt tinged with sadness in light of the fact that Eli's own sons were perennial disappointments, if not to him, then the whole nation of Israel. So what you have is a father largely disengaged from his sons, and a son who is, in all probability, largely disengaged from his own father, which would in all likelihood create a very strong bond between Eli and Shmuel beyond that typically expected between master and apprentice. Although the formal apprenticeship system is dated from the Middle Ages, arrangements whereby a practitioner of a trade or profession learns the biz from a seasoned professional existed for centuries. In fact, one could say it was the only form of schooling that existed until the advent of the system we would recognize as universal public education in the 18th century. And if you ask some folks, considering the state of learning today, they would advocate a sort of return to that model, a form of what researchers in education called situated learning where the focus is not just on abstract cognitive processes, but on learning through doing, interactions between individuals, 
cultural tools, and social communities. It's my turn next. Here's my first word of the spelling bee. <laughs> Failure? Yes, ma'am. That's an easy one. Failure. F-A-I-L-U-R-E. Failure. I did it! I did it! <laughs> Much of the research during my doctoral heyday was informed by the thinking of Jean Lave and Etienne Wenger. They developed this idea of situated learning by studying how craftsmen in African societies learn. They observed how learning happened through participating in a community of practice, which not only included the master, but also other apprentices and involved a lot of trial and error, as well as shared practices, routines, rituals, artifacts, symbols, conventions, stories, and histories. Though I am sure that Shmuel was not given the opportunity to monkey around with near offerings, he wasn't a Kohen after all. He did get to observe Eli in action up close in his dealings with petitioners, near offerers, as well as other priests and tribal leaders. He learned in order to participate in and contribute to community life. Sadly, Shmuel repeats his mentor's mistakes. He too has two sons who ostensibly follow in their father's footsteps, their judges as well, but they fall short. Yoel and Aviyah are not as corrupt as Chofni and Pinchas but their judging skills, or lack thereof, is the number one reason, actually it's the number two reason, that elders cite when they ask Shmuel for a king in chapter 8. But Shmuel, like Eli before him, has an apprentice too, Shaul, whom he mentors very closely. There are many moments when, even as king, Shaul looks to his master, Shmuel, for cues as to how to act and what to do. And, like the relationship Shmuel had with Eli, the relationship between Shmuel and Shaul is fraught as well. Remember, Eli knew that Shmuel would replace him. Shmuel knew the same about Shaul. This realization, in a sense, is baked into the master-apprentice relationship and handled generally with delicacy and aplomb. When Shmuel dies, though the text makes little of it, it hammers Shaul, it devastates him. Later, when Shaul is at a loss, desperate and alone on the eve of battle, a battle he will not survive. He seeks out a necromancer, a witch, so that he may communicate with, of all people, Shmuel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Shaul is still the king, and he's still alive. Shmuel is still dead. And Shaul, being king, is not a traditional master. He, he need not choose someone to mentor. And one does not need to vie for an apprenticeship to the throne. One is simply fortunate enough to be the king's firstborn son, and the rest is supposed to take care of itself. And Shaul has a son, Yonatan, who, unlike any other son we've read about in the book of Shmuel, he is not an embarrassment, just the opposite. He can improvise, create opportunities out of seemingly hopeless situations. He's brave, yet not foolhardy. He would make an excellent king. And yet, Shaul also takes David under his wing. The young shepherd boy from Bethlehem finds himself a sort of apprentice to the king. Shaul won't let him even go home to visit his parents. David eventually becomes an indispensable member of the royal court and beloved kinsman of Yonatan. And, did I also mention, Shaul's son-in-law? Which puts Shaul in kind of an awkward place. On the one hand, as all kings, he wants his son Yonatan to succeed him. But on the other hand, he's inadvertently groomed David to be a suitable candidate for the throne as well. And on top of all of that... Shaul manifests behaviors which one could easily identify as manic and bipolar. And so, to quote the persuaders, it's a dead 
which might explain why Shaul turns on his young apprentice with a murderous rage. A rage more appropriate for reality television's most popular master, Donald Trump. I don't want to give any more attention to Trump than he's already getting, but here's the thing about Trump and his erstwhile apprentices, initially regular civilians and eventually, to gin things up, B-list celebrities. You're not supposed to fire your apprentices. That's really not the point of the exercise. The idea is for the master to take on neophytes, show them the ropes, then gradually release the reins of responsibility so the newly learned can demonstrate their proficiencies and eventually take over. Except, well, for that one time when Shmuel basically tells Shaul, You're fired! But what Shaul did was really unacceptable, you know, when he near-offered without waiting for Shmuel to, on the eve of the battle against the Philistines. That far outstrips what Dennis Rodman or Ian Ziering or Lisa Rinna or Sinbad or LaToya Jackson did or didn't do to get fired. I mean, Keisha Knight-Pulliam got fired for not calling her tainted TV dad Bill Cosby to help her sell pies. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that Donald Trump is not a nice person. He's also a terrible teacher who seems to relish humiliating the people trying to learn from him. And... We enjoy watching him do it. At least we did enjoy it for about 14 seasons until his show was canceled in 2015. But fear not. Trump, with all his spare time, decided to teach America a valuable lesson by running for president. Perhaps when he's elected, he'll fire Congress and the Supreme Court when they displease him, and then he'll become King of America. But when I think of Shaul, I don't think of a vindictive, bigoted, superficial egomaniac. When I think of Shaul, I think of a tragic figure in the Shakespearean sense. Shaul as Macbeth. Both start with great promise and anticipation, despite the reservations expressed about monarchies. But soon enough, and perhaps in fulfillment of these reservations, both Shaul and Macbeth are gripped by internal doubts and suspicions, and act in a way that alienates them from their subjects. However, both also offer the promise of a youthful but good and promising successor who will provide relief. And both turn on those promising successors. When Macbeth says, full of scorpions is my mind. He may well be describing Shaul as both wrestle and struggle with the evil spirits that compel them to strike out. Lady Macbeth resolves the matter for her husband by attacking his manhood, his integrity, and the fidelity of his love for her. Shaul works it out for himself, overcoming the numerous bouts of guilt by action, the relentless pursuit of David, a pursuit which will reach its culmination in the next episode, one in which Shaul, like Macbeth, will enlist the dubious aid of the underworld against his enemies, and, like Macbeth, will end in a final, violent death and disgraceful decapitation. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... 
episode 69 when we conclude the first book of Samuel with chapters 28 through 31.